Coming to you pre-recorded from a cramped closet in Las Vegas, Nevada, and a New York City apartment far too close to the street. It's your favorite millennials with too much time on their hands. Welcome to the Red Team Reviews Podcast. 525,600 minutes is how long it's felt just between November and now, but we're going to ignore that. Hi, uh, you're listening to the Red Team Reviews Podcast. Uh, I am TJ Patrick, and join with me, as always, is my eternal duet partner, the Red Team Reviews. Gotta talk until TJ is blue. Trevor Catalano. That's actually, I kind of, no, I hate how, I hate that how so much better that is than whatever the fuck I just did. How dare you? <laughs> 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 fuck off. Uh, <laughs> so Trevor is now in charge of everything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> His viewpoints despairing okay. of the t- films he is viewing. All right, all right, we're done. <laughs> And today, <laughs> <laughs> it's a musical episode, right? That's no. what you told me, right? No, it's a, it's it an episode a musical where we episode. talk about ep- musicals. It is not a musical. It's the musical episode. episode. No, no. I, I never signed on to this. I will sue. One day more. Oh my god. Okay. We're filming this the day. We're recording this the day before Christmas. Oh my god. Tina. Tina. Lynn. Stop being a boot punch. Lynn. <laughs> um, and today I have a, it's a very special episode. Not only are we talking about uh, movie musicals, and I just want to make sure everyone knows up front before I even say one single solitary thing about any of these subjects today, we are talking about movie adaptations of Broadway musicals. We are talking about movie adaptations of musicals. We are not talking about the original musicals. That's a very important distinction. Get out of here, Grease. <laughs> so Get out of here, high school musical. So we are primarily going Clearly, to- based on the statistics from the Dakotas, we're not all in this together, COVID. Oh, Jesus Christ. So... <laughs> 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 Today is a very special episode, though, even beyond all that, because uh, this is an episode with my two best friends. Uh, many of you already clearly know that one of my best friends is Trevor Catalano, my co-host. We've said it, like, eh. more or less in every-ish episode so far. Uh, <laughs> but... Joining us is my other friend. These are my friends. There we go. Got it. Um, <laughs> my other <laughs> good best job. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'll applaud that. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, my other best friend, uh, Trixikins, Bellatrix Lestrange, uh, uh, or I should say, in uh, IRL, Bellatrix Lestrange, uh, Emily Goldbrinson. Hello, welcome. Hi, I my don't dearest know darling love. if I should be offended by in real life Bellatrix Lestrange, but um, look, man, <laughs> I didn't give you that nickname. You chose that nickname. I did not choose that nickname. You chose it because <gasps> I was Bellatrix Lestrange for Halloween one time, and I you're gonna come on do, my podcast. I do have her hair, so I will give you that. <laughs> But um, 
I have never killed anybody, and if I did, I would not brag about it by skipping through a field that I'm lighting on fire. So, um... I doubt that. Thanks well, for that. Two things. That's questionable. Two things. <laughs> two things. Uh, I find it funny that, that this is this is a nickname in your relationship when we're gonna talk about Helena Bottom Carter a lot today. Yep. And two... TJ has a history of being unable to I- introduce the, his guests without making them uncomfortable. So, um, That's not my fault. <laughs> it's not my fault that I love so much. Well, I should know uh, two of us, uh, two of the three of us are very much entrenched in the world of theater. Uh, much has been mentioned before about Trev's uh, theater group, the journalists. Uh, there have been links shared in the past. Uh, eh, why not? We, we can share another one uh, in the social media for this one. Why the hell not? Uh, and Trixikins is also uh, part of a theater group. Uh, would you like to briefly plug them before we get started, Trix? Sure. I'm the secretary to the Imposters Theater Company in Chicago. We were, I guess, in the middle of our second season before COVID hit and we had to stop. So we've been producing online recently. We put out some radio readings and we even made a campy little film. So if you'd like to check us out, we're on YouTube and Instagram. Cool, 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 cool. All right, so um, I guess that's well. We we have a pretty packed episode. So ordinarily, I would go a little bit deeper into like you know me and Trixie's relationship, how we met, like you know our relationship dynamics and stuff like that. But we actually have quite the hefty episode today. Uh, we mm-hmm. originally were going to have a lineup of three movie musicals. Those being Sweeney Todd, Les Miserables, and Rent. And then, uh, and I would like, I would just like, I would just like to point out that uh, I was not the one that chose that lineup. That lineup was chosen by our illustrious guest um, for various reasons, of which we'll probably touch on as we go on, so I won't mention them here. However, uh, after we started watching them, and specifically we watched Sweeney and then Les Mis... We were like, okay, we're probably going to say a lot of the same stuff. These are very similar musicals. Maybe we should look at a different one to do in in one of these, uh, in, to replace one of these. And that's when Trevor, that's when Trevor J. Catalano walked on the scene, swaggering, and laid down one out laid down a suggestion that to this day and he suggested this uh during the weekend it's wednesday like it was like four or five days ago where he suggested this at this point where he put mama mia on the on the table and i looked at him figuratively uh because we're not actually near each other covid and also we don't live also we don't I felt together. it I felt it in the <laughs> astral plane. I there looked, was a disturbance in the force. I looked at this man who I've shared a tour bus with and I said, 
Shared dressing rooms with. Shared dressing Well, I mean, can you call the room off the side of the off the stage dressing room? <laughs> uh, you have to in order to stay sane. But like, I lo- I was like, what? Why? Why, Mamma Mia? And we'll get into we'll get into that once yeah. once we get to Mamma Mia. But suffice it to say, now are our we lineup- gonna are we gonna say? Mm-hmm. Sorry, not sorry to interrupt you, but just like a logistic thing. Do, do you think it would be better if, if we said at the top of each one why we picked it? Sure. Yeah. Like, because we're, okay. we're going to end up talking about it anyway, so we might as well just say it off, off the top. So suffice it all to say, uh, our lineup now is Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Uh, it is Mamma Mia and Rent. And... Uh, I said that order in that specific order because that's the order we're going to go in. So we are going to start with Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Oh, boy. No, 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 TJ. It's the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Street. (laughs) I knew exactly where you were going with that. (laughs) Um, So... Yeah, uh, Trixikins, uh, would you like to tell us why, why you've, why you've, why you've done this to us in, uh, in picking this thing that happened well, in 2007? Simply, I'm just going to say I picked it because I hate it. Um, but I also <laughs> picked it because it's one of my favorite stage productions. So it has a now you know. So she heard and about us. I wanted you all to suffer. She heard about our reputation <laughs> for eviscerating shit. <laughs> she heard our <laughs> reputation for self sabotage exactly. and yes. uh, and ripping things apart, and wanted us to do that. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, honestly, there's a lot to say too. And I've never seen anybody who was like, so today I'm going to be reviewing Sweeney Todd. It's always like something bigger, like Lamez or whatever else, Dreamgirls, producers. It's all the same. I've never seen anyone talk about yeah. this. Um, there might be a reason. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm specifically talking about uh, the movie. Uh, also, something we should probably address with all three of these, uh, and we're probably going to sprinkle in mentionings of Les Mis here and there, just because uh, two of us did watch the entire thing. I watched the first 30 minutes and tapped out, but also Les Mis was like my first play or musical ever. Uh, it was the first time I was ever acting on a stage was Les Mis, so I know that musical very well, very intimately. Um, so we'll probably reference it here and there as we go along. But one thing we should probably point out with all of these is our ratio, let's call it. Uh, whereas Trixie just said that she loves the original, hates the movie. Uh, Trevor, what is your ratio when it comes to Sweeney? Uh, I like the original. Um, I was pretty indifferent to the movie until I watched it again. Um, it was definitely like a situation where when it came out early high or like early high school, uh, for me, it was all any of the other theater kids were talking about. So I was just like, it was like that in Moulin Rouge. It was like, they couldn't get enough of it. And so I was like, okay, all right, whatever. Um, but then after watching the movie, I'm like, this is 
not good. Um, and I'm really sad I missed the production at the Greenwich House Theater where you were in the pie shop because um, I was around for for that most recent staging of it in New York. So very upset that I didn't get to see it because uh, I was working. But yeah, uh, my history with Sweeney is very bare. Uh, I had never seen uh, any version of the musical uh, years ago, like years ago. I watched this movie version and I had no expectations and I don't really remember loving or hating it. Uh, I remember that the ending was kind of like, oh, oh, that's it. Um, and going like, okay, so it's like a tragedy, I guess. Okay. And then it like, I, you know, I never really thought much about it since. And then similar to Trevor going back and watching it now is kind of like, oh, this is bad, huh? Uh, and then also before we got into any of these, like Trixie had been very, very forthcoming with the fact that she hated this movie. So I was also like getting that, like while I was watching, I was like, okay. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God. 85% of what I say is references. The pieces began to fall in line. (laughs) Uh, yeah. And then on top of that, Trixie was kind enough to send me a link to, I guess, a PBS special where they did, like, not the full set, but they did, like, a concert version, but they still were acting it like a, you know, basically a performance of Sweeney Todd. Uh, and I watched that, like, almost halfway through the movie version. I literally stopped the movie where Turpin comes to see Sweeney Todd for the first time right before Pretty Women. And then I watched, like, the opening number that should have been in this movie on the PBS special, and I was like, oh, this is very different. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I understand now where this went wrong. And if I may be so bold as to start off this discourse on Sweeney Todd, I think I can pretty much sum up most of what's wrong with Sweeney Todd in a single sentiment. And that is Tim Burton. I think Tim Burton is the thing that kind of crawls in and just kind of infects everything about this movie. It's like the dominoes falling over. It's just like the second you get Tim, The second that, you know, the aesthetics have to be a certain way, the way that the tone has to be a certain way, the way that, you know, Johnny has to be there, Helena has to be there. It's like the second Tim Burton starts directing this thing, it's like this thing never had a chance. (laughs) When you when you look at the original, at least, it's like, no, there was no way you were going to get the original version of this the second Tim Burton was directing it. I mean, it's like uh, it's like how. um how it's essentially Tim Tim Burton being the choice to direct this is like how Hollywood thinks Broadway wants it to be. It was Hollywood going like, oh yeah, no, this is, I, I understand your pitch and I saw that on stage. You know who should do that? Tim Burton. And then in like, on paper, it's like, well, okay, all right. And then it happens and you're like, oh no, you, you missed the, you missed the buck 
big time on what we actually like about this musical. And it's not putting Johnny Depp in in dark makeup and, you know, monot- like in black and white tones. It's it's the the fanfare and the ridiculousness and the over the topness and the the insanity of it that that we want. And it's not just, oh, well, let's just put another thing in the Tim Burton universe. I think yeah. what's really unfortunate is Sweeney Todd in like this sort of like goofy, like Tim Burton stylized sort of aesthetic could have worked, but it didn't. <laughs> like, I feel like. Oh, I just had a brilliant just fucking idea. It could have gone farther. What if you did Sweeney Todd with Tim Burton, but in the claymation style? That could have been interesting. That might have worked. I mean. If we remember, Tim Burton did not, even though everyone loves to say Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas, Tim Burton did not direct the the Nightmare Before Christmas. Like, I think then at that point, we got to get, we got to get the director of Nightmare Before Christmas uh, on to do that. And in that case. Yeah, but you also have like Corpse Bride and stuff. Which I haven't, I mean, I haven't really seen, so I can't really speak on, unfortunately. Um, also, like, okay, so I was double-checking the name while I was talking. Henry Selleck is the guy that did Nightmare Before Christmas. He's also done James and the Giant Peach and Coraline. So it's like... Okay, all right. Yeah, that's the one. That's the person you want. It's like, now, that just made me upset. (laughs) Looking at this. (laughs) Oh, no. I I gave you this wonderful thing, and it will never happen. It will never happen. Actually, that's not true. That's not true. It might not. It might not never happen. <laughs> it might not never happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh. like, so Emily, what, what, in your opinion, beyond like what we've said, just makes it, just makes it bad for you? Um, it just, it doesn't have the heart. I think a lot of people don't realize that Sweeney Todd is a comedy. Um, and this shows none of that. I think it took a lot of pieces from the stage production and just kind of slapped them together into this big, like, drama, and it just fell flat. I, I also, like, I don't like looking at it. It's very boring for me. It's very monochrome. And it's just, it's a big, goofy musical. It's literally about a woman who's baking dead people into pies. Why is it so boring to look at? That doesn't make any sense to me. And I guess one could argue that it's because, oh, I want the blood to stand out, which, okay, great. But blood doesn't happen for 50 minutes. We're just staring at black and white for 50 minutes. And speaking of blood, uh, (laughs) that, oh, that... I, I I I have to talk about it. That opening credit scene is god awful. <laughs> that jam, that strawberry jam blood is just is comical. This movie came out in 2007. 2007. Fucking Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets had a basilisk and a phoenix fighting on screen and we didn't blink like fucking fucking they can't just do blood 
This strawberry, Nestle strawberry syrup looking bullshit is just infecting my eyes as I, like, it's the first thing that you basically encounter in the movie, which is its own problem. Because as I alluded to earlier, yeah, um, hi, how do you have a musical and not have a big opening number? I, I'm, I'm, no. No? No, you don't get, no. Yeah, especially because, like, especially because, like, that opening number was a big deal for this as a work of Sondheim at the moment it came out. Like, I think a lot of people, obviously, like, the advertising probably wasn't, like, deceptive or anything like that, but I think a lot of people walked into this after all of Sondheim's other work and were like, oh, oh, I'm actually kind of, like, chilled by this a little bit and I'm intrigued and let's go on this different very different journey from say like merrily we roll along Yay! or Sunday in the park with George like sorry I was I was in merrily <laughs> nobody ever- but I mean like then like on top of that you know just like if we're gonna like if we're gonna you know kind of open the door like yeah it doesn't have any feeling of it and like there's there's a couple reasons for that that I think we all kind of agree on. It's like, there's the casting, which is a missed shot, which was again on paper in 2007 would have made total sense, but it was a missed shot in reality. And my big point as to why it doesn't land with me and doesn't elicit any emotions, because like with these other ones, there are moments where I tuned out or moments where I was like, "Mm, would have loved to see that more on stage. But then the music came back and it's full force. And I was like, no, I feel again. And this one doesn't do that at all for me because they don't, really care about it like tim burton doesn't care about it because the the lyrics are thrown completely away you could care less about what they're saying because you get everything that you need to know out of visual storytelling through the film and while like as a film i guess that's okay but it's a musical adaptation the lyrics should matter because they matter in the musical and so you have people who are not right for the parts and not right for the dynamics singing songs that no one really cares about. They just care about like continuing this plot um, through visuals for the rest of the time. And then certain songs that could have been a fun romp are kind of pointless, you know? Yeah, there's this movie. There's so many reasons that Tim Burton was not the right choice for this, even though on paper, like we've said, it does make sense. Um, I'm reminded of, you know, the whole Beauty and the Beast thing where on paper, Emma Watson is an amazing pick for Belle. That's an amazing get for a live action Beauty and the Beast until you put it into practice and you realize that the people making this weren't quite sold on her voice and so they started messing with it digitally and it's just it's one of those things where it's like somebody could have done this better somebody absolutely could have done this better and I know it's like a fantasy casting but it's like you had to get somebody that was really going to embody this character and it's like they looked at that and they were like, oh yeah, Belle's like Hermione. So let's just get Hermione. And it's like, that's not really, that's not really how that, that's not really how that works. Or they were like, hmm, Belle is like one of the more feminist Disney princesses, I guess. And 
Emma Watson is a well-known feminist in real life. So that works. And I'm like, that's not, but that's not why you cast somebody. And it's the same thing here. It's like, they just kind of look at Sweeney Todd on a very surface level and they go, hmm, dark. And they go, who else is dark? Hmm, Tim Burton. And it's just like, yeah, but have he you ever- He did scissor hands and scissors are barbers. <laughs> Barber scissors. <laughs> Barber scissors. Barber scissors. <laughs> da, 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 da. Now we're in Moulin Rouge. <laughs> which the stage adapta- adaptation is fun, but bad. Um, I wouldn't know. And it's only bad because they add a bunch of dumb songs they don't need to, like Katy Perry songs and shit. Um, oh, ugh. And they change Elephant Love Medley. They add stuff to it and get rid of things. And I'm like, it's probably because of the rights, but how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> it's probably for this reason that I understand. Aaron Tibet is not worth this. It's probably for this reason I very much understand and is, you know, regrettable, but still, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> then don't do it. This is the one thing everyone was looking forward to. Um. Anyway, back to Sweeney Todd. Yeah. But so, yeah, I mean, well then, and also just to like, kind of to the point, like Tim Burton's, the way Tim Burton thinks about this film and the way he like lines up his shots and uses the visuals to story tell, it makes everything so obvious. It makes everything about like the reveals later so obvious. Like you can easily tell from the moment she comes on, on screen that that specific homeless woman is the mom. Like, it's it's just incredibly obvious, whereas on stage, you wouldn't know that. It's probably this person who just blends in with the rest of the ensemble, creeps in for a second, and you think, ah, it's a one-liner thing. And then, slowly but surely, you build it up to, who is this person? But no, we know right off the bat because of the way he shoots it. And so I'm just like, everything is just, like, this forced, like just spoon-feeding every little bit, um, but not giving you anything that you actually want to eat. Yeah, and there's zero energy there's no passion Mm -hmm. there's no like spark of life or spark of joy uh in anyone like nothing is done tongue-in-cheek nothing is done with like a wink and a smile there's no like like i think a good example of just like something that again it's like it's the same thing on paper but it's the all, it's all in the execution is like at the beginning of a little priest, Mrs. Lovett, uh, she starts to kind of put the pieces together and she's like trying to, you know, trying to get Sweeney on the same page. And she's like, you know, seems like an awful waste to just have this body just sitting here. And you know, the meat, oh, prices are just man impossible so you know maybe we could just uh and then like in the show or at least the one version of the show that i've seen that i basically have all i all i have is like this one version of the show and this one version of the movie uh is like in in that (laughs) version of the show emma thompson who plays who plays mrs lovett with so much enthusiasm is like, hey, hey, hey. And Sweeney's like, 
Oh, and she's like, Jesus Christ, finally. <laughs> and it's like, it's funny. It's supposed to be funny because Sweeney is like so oblivious in this moment. And she basically has to like crack him over the head and go, hey. <laughs> well, but also, in the movie uh, version. That song is full of puns. It is. It's full of puns. So why does it make me want to die and not laugh? Because, well, because <laughs> they're just staring out a window. Yeah, Earth? like half the reason, half the reason they're waving through a window. <laughs> half the reason you're gonna get us sued. <laughs> I'm gonna have as many as I can, as many references as I can. How many musicals have we already references that we're not talking about today? I'm not. I'm not even gonna. <laughs> that should be a thing, though. Uh, for any, for anyone listening, take count, uh, and then just <laughs> just message us <laughs> the number of musicals that we just t- make a list. Just be like, oh, the cow was white as milk. The year is yellow as corn. <laughs> Oh my god. Anyway. <laughs> Snuck another one in. <laughs> um, part of the reason for that is because the blocking of basically all of the numbers. The blocking of basically all of the numbers is off. For those um who are not actors or have done any theater or anything, blocking is basically just the movement of actors in the space. So it's like when somebody moves to the right that that's a, an example of blocking or when they hear this line they have to run off stage like that's blocking um and the blocking of any of the musical numbers is just so boring they're always in like a single location they're just kind of doing realistic things while they're just standing in the same spots or just like they may give the actor some busy work like Worst Pies in London is just literally, they're in the same two spots for basically the entire song. And Helena Bonham Carter just needs to just find things to do. And Johnny Depp just needs to find things to do. And that's bad blocking. You need to actually do shit. Um, And the worst example of that is A Little Priest. Because they're literally just standing at windows looking outside and remarking and then they go to another window and they do the same thing and they go back to the other window and they do the same thing. And this is a long ass song. Like even in the like PBS version, I was like, Jesus, this song is still going. What the fuck? (laughs) I get that there are a lot of puns, but just like, good Lord. Um, and it's not, interesting it doesn't further anything like it's like emily mentioned before it's the the movie already has this monochromatic very samey look all the colors are dulled and it's just like it's already kind of unpleasant to look at and then the actors aren't really doing anything the camera isn't really doing anything worthwhile or interesting or anything at all which is Super interesting because this directly follows the only time they ever really do that in the entire fucking movie outside of um, outside of Mrs. Lovett's song a little later on. But in the epiphany scene where Sweeney goes from just wanting to kill Turpin and that other dude 
uh, to wanting to kill basically just anyone in London. Like, that whole number is actually shot like it should be. It should be very surreal. It should be, you know, breaking down the laws of, like, realism because this is a fucking musical. Of course it should. <laughs> like, Sweeney's going up to people and, like, singing, like, you, I want to kill you, ah, I want to kill you. And he's, like, you know, hands, arms just fully outstretched and, like, full-on Christ pose in the middle of a busy street with his two knives. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That should be the whole movie. The problem is that it's not because Tim Burton doesn't know how to do musical numbers at all. <laughs> so, so what are our thoughts on the casting? Wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I uh, I'm I mean yeah. <laughs> why why are you doing a musical and casting people who can't sing and we should or at least can't sing that musical well yeah both. That's, a... that's my that's my big thing here is that like i can sing i can't sing some musicals and so like i do want to make like that distinction here i i think one of my biggest issues with it is <laughs> i know a lot of people like helena bonham carter but i i think she can play this role I just think I don't like it when she sings ever. I don't think I've ever seen her in anything where I actually enjoyed her singing. I don't know what it is. I just don't, I don't like it. It sounds the same all the time. Like I just feel like I'm listening to the same note over and over and over again, whenever she sings. Like, And Mrs. Lovett is such a larger than life character. And like, it was just so and honestly i don't personally think johnny depp can sing at all oh no that that i will <laughs> i will go on where it's like you know there there's arguments when we when you talk about lame is it's like can these people sing and like well they can't sing lame is um but no johnny depp it, it's su it's such a thing where it's like okay we were so in the throes of like his pirates of the caribbean and other tim burton projects like fame that like I'm sure audiences were just enthralled with him, but then looking, but look like watching it this year, I'm like, Oh, I, I, I'm not enjoying watching him like at all. And I know too much about his dumb assery. Um, and it's bullshit to where I'm just like, ah, go away, get somebody else. Like literally it's the same thing with, uh, with, uh, Russell Crowe playing Javert. It's like in both cases, it's like Norm Lewis is right there. And he's played both of these roles. Can you just cast him? I've seen him in movies. He does great. And who doesn't love Norm Lewis? Right. Like, every theater kid would pee their pants. The people, the people that don't know who <laughs> Norm Lewis is. Yes, but then they would know who Norm Lewis is. Think about all the people that then, like, got into movies because of Hamilton, who are incredible singers and performers. And so it's like, you know, then people would know who he is. And we don't have to deal with Johnny Depp. Like, literally, before this episode, I kind of didn't know who who Norm Lewis was, so. <laughs> well, it's the same thing if we're going to talk about Les Mis. It's like, nobody knows who Samantha Barks is, but Samantha Barks is a fantastic Eponine, and she played the role before. So yeah. it's one of those things where it's like, you get some flexibility when you do stuff like Hugh Jackman, 
And you even like stretch it with like Anne Hathaway's performance and Les Mis. And like, you know, and I, I'm pretty sure that the kid who plays Toby is a Broadway kid. And so it's like you you stretch certain things and put Broadway in certain places. Aaron Tivet in Les Mis is like, yeah, Broadway person. And so it's like you stretch certain things in certain ways, but then you just you make these decisions on compromising the character and the performance for the name. And I don't know why people haven't realized it doesn't pay off yet. Like this has been one of the most time tested things I ever since ever since movie musicals were like actually taken somewhat seriously. This has always been a thing. Hell, this is sometimes even a thing when it comes to aspects like animation, just in general. But it's specifically focusing on musicals. There's always the question of like, if this is a musical, why are you casting people that, and there's, we need to specify, there's a difference between being able to carry a note, being able to carry a tune, and being able to sing. Like, why are you casting people that can't sing in a musical? And I can't tell you how many times they do the same fucking bullshit over and over of just like, they can't actually physically sing the thing that you're giving them. What is the point of casting? <laughs> like, it's almost as though they had somebody in mind in a character breakdown way, and then they had them audition with the music, and then they went, oh, we, we'll make it work. We'll make that work. Which, honestly, they do on Broadway sometimes, too, um, when they want a big name on Broadway. So that's annoying, too. But... <sighs> But, like, yeah, basically all of Sweeney Todd can just be boiled down to Tim Burton. And it, it like, reaches out to all these other things of, like, the cast is here because Tim Burton's here. The cinematography choices of just, like, why shoot things a certain way and they should be shot a different way. It's more or less because Tim doesn't really know how to do musical numbers he's not really comfortable with them clearly he does know how to do regular scenes though because one of the few notable like not bad things about the film is alan rickman who in a very Mm -hmm. specific scene when he's intimidating antony is one of the grossest most despicable examples of like how you just how you immediately make a character slimy as all fuck and i don't know is that i think that scene's less than like two minutes long and it's one of the most effective scenes in the entire fucking movie but it's not a musical number (laughs) so it's like yeah yeah of course (laughs) and it's alan rickman but Alan Rickman only really gets to do so much as, like, his Alan rickman e self. Because most of the other parts, most of the other times that really he has to shine, he also has to do Sondheim. And look, I love Alan Rickman. Talk. We all love Alan Rickman. But we've said it just early. Like We've literally said it a couple minutes ago. Like, Sondheim is an entirely different beast of musical. Some people, you just, no, no, just don't even do it. Don't even try to do Sondheim. Because I think, 
from what I understand, I think Alan Rickman did quite a lot on the West End and correct me if I'm wrong, quite a lot on the West End that wasn't Sondheim. And so it's like, I think he has musical theater chops. It's just probably not this. Right. Like, I, by the time I got to Merrily We Roll Along in my acting career, I had done a shit ton, actually. I had done Les Mis. I had done Bye Bye Birdie. I had done Little Shop. I had done 12 Angry Men. I had done so many things. And then Merrily We Roll Along, I was thanking my fucking lucky stars I was in the goddamn ensemble. And I was not a lead. Like, because I watched as my friends and, like, and, and, and my colleagues, my classmates, were just... Oh. <laughs> and Merrily isn't even one of the harder Sondheim ones. But Franklin Shepard, Inc. is just... It's like... It's like hard mode. <laughs> it's like musical theater hard mode. <laughs> it's not easy. And in order to really do it and sell it, you gotta love it. You gotta love how stupid and over-the-top and bullshit Sondheim is in order to really get it right. And none of these people in this movie are really like that. So so what you would like to say to Sondheim is that it's your fault. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Stop this right now. <laughs> this is how we got to this place in the first place. Anyway, so you need to explain what you've done to I us. I mean, is that not the quintessential Sondheim? It's just like talking fast, talking fast, talking fast, talking fast. Hi, low. <laughs> that's that's Sondheim <laughs> in, in a nutshell. <laughs> Do we have anything else to say about Sweeney Todd? No, no let's I move on. Okay, because I really need Trevor to actually explain to everyone listening and to me <laughs> why <laughs> he did this to me. This man... In the same year that I had to watch fucking Attack of the Goddamn Shitting Clones, in the same year he made me watch. You do that in the same like it's like within a month of each other too. Now I have to watch Mamma Mia. How dare you, sir? You not liking Mamma Mia is your own fault. First Um, off, how dare you? Because because. Cause I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit here and say that Mamma Mia is a great piece of cinema. I chose Mamma Mia after hearing the original choices because we just so happened to be in a place of like, there's a lot of death. And like, while these had like Rent and Les Mis have like that uplifting end to the grief and Sweeney Todd is just all like all spiral down. Um, so like I needed to fill that other quadrant of like, I, I think if we're going to talk about musicals, and, and quite frankly, this episode is probably just like volume one of us talking about movie adaptations right. of musicals. Because I looked up all the other ones we could have done with like Little Shop, West Side Story, Hairspray. Like there were other ones that like, you know, how we can probably talk about. Um, but Mamma Mia was just the one that stuck out to me. A, because I kind of wanted to just hear the ABBA songs, quite frankly. Um, B, because yeah, it would piss TJ off. And C, um... It's it's such a just it's really like the it's the much ado compared to the Othello. It's the you know, the stakes are are high, but for like a love and and kind of frivolous reason. And people are trying to find themselves in a positive way. And it's a silly concept. It's like, you know, we don't know who your dad is. So you invited every possible choice. It's very silly. It's the opportunity for, um, you know, for us to have choruses that aren't 
you know, people, uh, poor people, like people just, uh, you know, dragging themselves through their days, which all the other movies have. This has like an actual chorus with choreographed dance numbers and, and it, it, it fills the slot of, oh, uh, what you would think a musical would be. And so I was like, yeah, let's watch that one. And let's watch that one as well. I'm not saying I liked every part of it because I actually hadn't seen the movie prior to this, but I thought it was a good choice of musicals to compliment what we talked about. So I'm just going to hone in on what I believe to be the actual reason that this happened to me was that you knew it would piss me off. Um. <laughs> oh, please. No, I actually wanted to watch it. So like, but truth is that like, you know, we have archetypes that you have in musicals, like the silly friends and the ants and the, uh, you know, one guy is uh, a little bit this way and another guy is a little bit that way. You have like the leading man and the leading woman, but they're a little bit older. You have the young lovers, you know, and then you also have like, you have Meryl Streep, like, you know, all in all, these are all fun performers, even if they, again, did the thing where you cast somebody for the the, you know, for the rap sheet, but not for the music. Yep. Cause yeah, there's some, there's some poor music performances. Yep. Right? And there's obviously some where they like, they kind of avoid giving that person a song. Cause the men don't really have that many songs unless they're decent, like decent singers. I'm pretty sure sky uh, is the only guy who really leads a song at any point. Uh, um, besides Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. That was, <laughs> And that's a great song. That's a great song between the two of them. And it's fun that we get to have the the women of the island with Dancing Queen doing their choreography and the guy choreography with uh, with Lay All Your Love or what's the name of that song? So yeah, it's Lay All Your Love. I, I, I could not tell um, you. <laughs> but like we got choreography and choruses. I love how the Greeks are literally a Greek chorus who's laughing at them the entire time. I think that's so fun. Um, it's, it's a story while, you know, while it doesn't pass the Bechdel test, it is a story centered around the women and their experiences. Um, and the guys just kind of play a, a you know, plot role. Um, and like, you know, I'm, I'm just going to lay all my notes out here. Um, <laughs> cause I'm just going to keep going until you, until you say, oh, you're right. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's it's very Shakespearean with the ending and, uh, you know, it's little moments of comedy that I can see being translated to on stage, like just the little moments within a song between two characters and then they part ways and keep dancing or um, wet Colin Firth um, is always funny. Uh, Colin Firth with his shirt soaked on is always funny. Um, you know, I just think it's I, th- I think that it was a great upper. It was the Prozac that we needed to get to rent. After everything else. And I also have a few notes for it. Okay. Are you done? Yeah. <laughs> he said nervously. Uh, <laughs> uh, Trixie, would you like to I hop in this? here? <laughs> well, I actually enjoyed it. It took a second for my eyes to adjust and my ears to adjust to Pierce Brosnan's <laughs> screaming. Um, but I I think my favorite parts of it were the parts with Donna, Rosie, and Tanya. Those were the parts I found myself enjoying the most. And it could just be because I absolutely adore Christine Baranski. And 
I mm-hmm. thought her as Tanya was the best thing about this movie. And I, I'm pretty sure every time she was on screen, it added years to my life <laughs> because she was just so damn funny. Um, I think my least favorite part, and it's not even because I didn't like her. I just like, I didn't really, I, I just didn't really care for like the parts with Sophie that much. Like I, I don't want to say I didn't like her, but I just didn't really feel invested in her like at all. Um, I think people have a hard time investing in Amanda Seyfried, quite frankly. I think that's just a universal well, thing about what's unfortunate, her. Is that, like, I've never heard anybody saying like, I'm invested in her. I like Amanda Seyfried, Seyfried, Seyfried. What's unfortunate though, is vocally, she sounded really good in this movie, especially compared to all that vibrato garbage she was doing in Les Mis. She sounded yeah. great. Yeah, because she definitely added that in Les Mis. She sounded great in this movie. I just like, I think... I had trouble with her because she gave me a lot of secondhand embarrassment. I think that's where it was. Like I was embarrassed Mm. every time she did something like embarrassed for her. And every time she was on, I was like, why are you doing this? No, but like it didn't, it it didn't make me not enjoy it though. Like I was still invested in what she was trying to do. I think my other biggest problem with it is it's, women-centered, tons of female characters, and all of their plot lines were about men and their relationships with men, which was like, oh, okay. Um, So that was disappointing. I mean, at least the resolution of Donna and Sophie is that... Donna should be giving her away. But then we muddy that with the rest of the rest of the movie with, first of all, they didn't know what to do with winner takes at all. They didn't know what to do with that musical number. So they just said, Meryl, just take it. And then she just walks back and forth at Piers Brosnan. And then he, you know, shouts at her from a wave crashing on a crag. Um, So they didn't really know what to do with that. And so like, but like that sequence with them and her getting ready is very sweet. And it's a great song to go with that. Um, and so it's like, it's heartfelt, but yeah. And then they really shoehorn, uh, uh, take a chance on me at the end there. And like, there's just a lot that they like really kind of like stitch in when the movie kind of feels like it's done. Yes. And you know that they could have done it better because movie musicals don't always keep the order of the songs clearly. And they don't always keep every song. So it's kind of like, eh, did you need it? And yeah, they kind of ruined the ending with having a wedding anyway. I thought the movie was over at least 15 times. I was like, oh, we're at the end. And then there was something else. Yeah. I was like, okay, now this mm-hmm. is the end. And then there was something else. And I was like, okay, now is this the end? And then Pierce Brosnan started singing again. And I thought we were done. And I was like, okay, are we done yet? Um, Wow. So I think the way I felt about the men in this movie, at least, especially when they had to sing, it was reminiscent of high school theater where it was like, okay, so we've got a show here with a lot of men in it, even though we only have a half of a boy in the theater department who can only sing soprano. And so what we did is we (laughs) just stopped this one guy who plays basketball outside of his geometry class. And now he's going to be playing Shrek. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's what this felt like and the other boy is gonna be uh yeah, pinocchio that's what this felt like and then like 
And you're going to have and a girl doctor. Like, and here's the best part. We have 1,500 women in this department who are classically trained singers and have been working on their vocal cords for 15 years, and they're all in the ensemble. But you're going to have to listen to these people. That's what this felt like. Yes, you're totally right <laughs> with that. Um, but I mean, beyond that, you know, I think it's I, I think it's a fun thing. Um, you know, I, I had to laugh at how many freaking costumes there were on, in Money, Money, yeah, Money. Yeah, that was good. And... I really do like cinematically how a lot of it calls back to like cheesy ass music videos and how they had the older actors, but in the young makeup and the young costumes. I thought that was fun. I thought, you know, despite what what what, you know, is going to happen when we start to really turn up the criticism. It's like I they very much knew what they were doing and knew what they were working with because they could have cast cast young versions of those characters. And then they did in the sequel. And so. Instead, they just went full on into the cheese. And that's why I'm actually still very glad that we chose this because it just it's just another it's just another flavor of musical for us to talk about. There's a train about to go by my house. Just it makes a lot of noise. Oh, I thought you meant TJ. <laughs> TJ's about to crash in here. <laughs> I thought and TJ he was the train about, that was about to, to go ruin by house. Mama Mia for everyone. You know, there are some times when I look at the reputation I've gained over these past few months with this podcast, and there are times when I lament that reputation, and then there are times when we talk about Mamma Mia. (laughs) (laughs) At least you're being a good sport about it. And I go, no, no. No, this has been earned, and it is where I belong. Because, first of all, you act like I'm going to disagree with everything that you've said. (laughs) Look, fine, I agree with basically everything that you've said. The only problem is that none of it fucking matters. (laughs) Because... Frankly, my dears, this movie is trash. It is garbage. It is awful. And it's not because it's Mamma Mia. That's not why the movie is trash. The movie is awful because it was made awfully. <laughs> like, oh, I think I think I can give you that. I think I can let you ruin it in that way. No, you, no, 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 Because I don't think this. anybody who... Don't you position this like I'm your dog on a leash <laughs> and you just let me off whenever it you deem it worthy to have my disdain thrown at a movie, sir? <laughs> I gotta let him get his energy out or else I'm gonna be dealing with this at like 3 a.m. <laughs> oh, yeah, because I'm the one that texts you at 3 a.m., right. Well, I mean, that's how time differences work. <laughs> I'm just saying <laughs> the facts are the facts. But anyway, so, okay, I have some notes here. I struggled to take notes on on basically all of these movies for different reasons. Um, part of it is just because I'm very scatterbrained and... Uh, I may or may not have ADHD. We've yet to determine this. And um, I have so many thoughts 
it's difficult to keep track of them. And I always say that I'm going to get them down and don't have to pause the movie. And then I definitely have to end up pausing the movie because I have like three different lines of notes to write. Um, so basically, the big thing with so many of these movies, and I, 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 can't, I can't say all, and I'll get to that when we get to it. But with so many of these movies, fucking A, they do not know how to goddamn shoot musical numbers. And I'm baffled because I'm like, why is this hard? Why is it hard to just know what? It's just like blocking a scene. Just block it like a scene. Because so many times when they're doing these musical numbers, it feels like they're stalling. It feels like they kind of, it's like the, the thing I said earlier about like how, well, Helena Bonham Carter's just kind of like finding things to do while she sings and Johnny Depp is basically glued to this chair. So he's trying to find things to do so many times in these musical numbers. It's like they're pacing or they're cutting between two different locations, but not really anything is happening or like. There's a big dance number, but the dance number is just them doing basic, like, high school theater-level choreography in one place. Like, putting their hands up, putting their hands down, like, just like, I... But you can do things, though. Like, these are musical numbers that are actually saying so or they should be actually saying something because that's a different thing entirely with this musical but it's like for the musical numbers that actually do have a definite thing to say and they actually have a definite place where they are at so many times i was just like so you're just what are you doing right now like meryl streep you're on this roof i guess struggling with the decision on whether or not you should like look through the door but you've been doing that for like a good 30 seconds now like you you don't have anything else to do like it's it is it really this hard of a decision you're just kind of treading water here uh (laughs) i'm like what yeah like the first song and here's the thing because I'm saying like I'm saying like they need to do be they need to be doing more. They need to be more imaginative. The thing that bugs me the most about adapting anything musical or play related to screen, the thing that irritates me is when they just do it like it was a play. And I'm like, you're a movie. You can do anything. You have the power of editing. Like what the fuck? Why are you just playing this out like where like fences actually pissed me off when I saw it? When because it was like so many of fences is just people talking in a location, more or less the same location. And then most of the movie was them talking in a location, more or less the same location. And I'm like, are you a movie or not? Why do you exist? And that's how I felt during a lot of the first number of this because Sophie is telling the story of her mother's diary entries that basically spells out her dad could be three different people, but they shoot it as just Sophie telling the story. I'm like, fucking, 
go back in time. Like, show us some shit. Like, show us exaggerated, you know, like, flashback sequences of what Sophie imagines is happening. And show Sophie, like, reading it while the scene is happening. Have some, like fun shit go on or something you're supposed to be fun and dumb and mm-hmm. stupid and i want you to be more dumb and stupid than you are which is <laughs> which is interesting that like that's the idea you pose because like as a theater director you were saying that and i was like well yeah if i was directing mama mia on stage i'd probably still do that i'd probably assign ensemble members to be the representations of them as young people and have some sort of like sequence with that alongside the song and i'm like yeah, no, I'd totally do that. Yeah. Or at least or at least do it to where it's like, oh, I'm going to play my mom and you're going to play the boy, even though it's one of her friends. Yeah. Like, do something like that. Exactly. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, I mean, like, so you do have to balance it a little bit because, like, yes, there are some songs where they do go over the top and elsewhere and into these fantasies and stuff like that. It's just not all of them. And you're right. Dancing queen with all the girls is pretty basic ass choreography, but I think that the guys kind of is an, as a flip side of that, where like the bodybuilder guys, that's not simple. I don't, I don't think what they were doing was all that, that simple, or at least it was more entertaining. Like so many of these songs I've physically was asking myself out loud. What is the point of this? And that's always bad. That's always a bad sign. Because in a movie, I don't care what, I don't care if it's a horror movie, a sci-fi movie, if it's a comedy, if it's a musical adaptation. If you're an, if you have any scene in a movie and you're wondering why this is here, that's bad. That's always bad, no matter what. But specifically for some of these songs, I was honest to God, trying to keep up and trying to be here in the moment. And I was like, what exactly is the message you're trying to give me? Because this feels like an excuse to do dumb shit. And it's like, you can do dumb shit, but you really should have a reason for doing dumb shit. That's the thing. That's the X factor. Like... Fucking, in Little Shop of Horrors, there's so much dumb shit. There's so much stupid shit. Like, the Ronettes are, like, when you really actually think about it, the the Ronettes are really weird and dumb. But, they're really weird and dumb because, like, they're the Greek chorus. So, like, but this version of, this musical's version of a Greek chorus is basically a bootleg Supremes. So that's what they do. Like, that's what they do. It's not complicated. Like, it you could, on the surface, just see that, like, oh, yeah, these street urchins, these hoodlums, they put on sparkling sequin dresses because it's silly. But it's like, no, but it has a reason for them doing it, though. Like, it's rooted in something. So that's why they can get away with it, and it can be easy to do. The whole number of Skid Row is, like, so cartoonishly over the top. But it's like, it serves a purpose. It's silly and goofy and over the top, but it makes it memorable. And that number needs to be memorable because the entire plot revolves around the fact that Skid Row is a horrible place to live and everyone wants to leave. So if you just do Skid Row, like it's just like, 
uh, we're, we're singing about a place because the musical takes place here. It's not the same. It doesn't work. It needs to be over the top, like awful because that's what makes Seymour Krelborn fucking make a deal with the plant devil. Like that's the only way that makes sense. And I was waiting so long for so many of the things in Mamma Mia to kind of like do shit like that where it's like, okay, that makes sense. And so many things were just like, you honestly just wanted an excuse to do this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the problem with jukebox musicals. I think you run into that problem with jukebox musicals at all. I think American Idiot has those same problems. I think that uh, Rock of Ages has those same problems where it's like when you're working with pre-existing songs, you kind of have to bend the story to the songs, which is unfortunate. And so, like, I almost would say that that's more of a problem with the source material at all than it is about the film itself. Well, but it is a problem with the adaptation specifically because there are dialogue scenes. That's how I know it's a problem with the with the movie version, because I'm like, well, you just need to fix shit with the dialogue. Then if the if the original source material was really stretching the reasons for why these specific ABBA songs are used, use the dialogue to make shit make sense. And not only does the film not do that, it does the opposite of that. It does negative that. Because halfway through the movie, there's a huge blow up between Donna and Sophie. And I lit- I physically was like, where the hell did that come from? Because they just didn't set it up. They li- There's all this payoff in like the second half of the movie where there was very little set up in the first half. And honestly... It's because they were spending so much time just having fun doing songs and shit and setting up the plot, but they didn't set up individual character motivations or individual character themes or literally just like, I never knew how crucial to the story it was that A, Donna doesn't necessarily want Sophie to leave, B, Sophie basically even if it's subconscious feels obligated to stay with donna and see that sophie actually could have a future as an artist or d bonus that sky doesn't even necessarily want to get married right now none of that was set up until it was already an issue until it was already a conflict and that's why i was like wait a minute 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 They're arguing about getting married now. When was that an issue? And so, like, yeah, now I'm completely disassociated with everything that's happening because I'm like, yeah, I think that's actually why Sophie is not that interesting of a character. They don't really put in the legwork to setting up the actual conflict, to setting up the actual story. They set up the plot. Because the plot is about finding her dad, but they don't set up the story, which is that, you know, it's about a mom and a daughter that were so close for so many years, like the daughter's entire life, and now she's getting ready to leave. That's the story, but they don't really do enough to kind of like give you that story. I've been talking a lot. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's fair. 
No, that's fair. I think you just laid it all out. I just think, uh, yeah, I think we, it, but I think that like, do we have anything else to say? Because I think that like, yeah, you're not wrong about any of the things you you laid out here. The Cougar song um, makes me uncomfortable. Oh my God. I okay. Said it. Okay, wait. <laughs> I, I have to admit that was probably my favorite part. <laughs> and it's 100% because of Christine Baranski. And I'm sorry it made you uncomfortable, but I've spent 27 years watching old men on screen with young girls. So you got to let me have this one. Yep. That's true. I objectively get that. And you're going to have to objectively get that maybe some of that subconsciously is the fact that, hey, there's one super dark skinned guy and it just so happens to be this guy. That, yeah, I did actually think, why did it have to be this way? Um, so I do get that. That was icky. Because, like, I... I also love Christine Bransky. I think she's great, but like the song did shit for me. Like I really did, could care less about the song. That was the case with so many of these songs. So many of them were just like noise. Like there were the ones that I knew and I was like, oh yeah, I know that one. But not a lot of them, like if, again, I couldn't name more than like, three songs in the movie i couldn't sing any of them that i did that i didn't already know before watching it so it's just i don't know what i don't know what it is i i really like maybe it's the whole thing of like the story wasn't that great so i didn't connect as much but honestly i just think it's like honestly some of the songs aren't just really aren't that catchy to me which is weird because it's see that's that to pop. me is a weird statement. Yeah, it's like ABBA. It's like a pop jukebox musical. <laughs> but I said a lot of negative stuff. There is like some very small positive stuff in that, like uh, some of the framing is really nice, especially after you get through Sweeney Todd and then you go to this, and it's like some of the framing is really nice. How they place people and how like the symmetry of certain shots. Like just, just certain shots are just like, yeah, this is the tone that we need. This is the right aesthetic. The Greek chorus is really nice. Um, the, just, just the visual of the, of Sky's song with all the men like marching off the bridge, like stuff like that is like, yeah, this fits. This is nice. It was inconsistent for me. But, like, it was still there. So I do have to acknowledge, like, okay, this is one of the few things that I genuinely liked, especially coming off of Sweeney and Les Mis, or at least the first 30 minutes of Les Mis. Um, and then, slipping through my fingers was, like, one of the rare moments where it was exactly what I was looking for. I'm like, this is it. This is how you do it. Slipping through my fingers is, like, the entire, like, I wish the entire musical was like this. Where that mm-hmm. whole scene is like 50% of the whole story. It sho- it shows it through the song. And like, it's like... It's almost as though they should have done that song earlier to set up the whole, oh, she shouldn't leave, she should stay with me. Yeah. And I'm feeling obligated. And then just rep- reprise it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if even that. And it's just... Also, um... I think the song is, uh, 
I think the song is Gimme, Gimme, Gimme. Or, like, it's the one with, like, the Bachelor. Yes. It's, like, after Super Trooper, the Bachelorette party that gets invaded yes. by the Bachelors. It's and Gimme, like, Gimme, Gimme. That is anxiety personified. <laughs> That's correct. And that was when I objectively was just like, yeah, this is, I could not advise you to do this scene any better. This is exactly how you should do this scene. Because even I'm getting on edge just watching it. <laughs> and when she faints, I'm like, yeah, I, f- I feel you, honestly. <laughs> um. Also, yes, the return of the king-ing of the ending. Yeah, I, I definitely felt that too. Um, and Pierce Brosnan should never sing another note in his life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, he does. He's in the sequel. No. <laughs> All right. So anything more on Mamma Mia? <laughs> no. No. And I do, I do want to like kind of backtrack and be like, hi, TJ. I do actually appreciate your notes. Cause you're right about pretty much everything. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you, friend. (laughs) All right. Well, that brings us to fucking rent then. Jeez. No, I look going into this episode, even when it was uh, Sweeney, Les Mis and Rent, even when it was Sweeney, Mamma Mia and Rent, I was always side eyeing Rent like you. You're the one I don't like, though. So, yeah, that's uh, not what I expected. I expected <laughs> rent to be uh, rent to be the kind of stick the landing situation. Now, not that I think it's that. No, that that great. That but. changes like after you watch like Sweeney and Mamma Mia, and then rent. Yeah, but I'm saying like before we watched any of them, like I was looking at rent like oh, you. <laughs> so I really wasn't looking forward to rent until I saw the other two, and then rent. And then it was just like, okay, I'll meet you in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> so Emily, what's what was the what was the pick on okay, this? Okay, so it's an unpopular theater kid opinion, but Rent is my number one favorite musical ever. It is the first musical I fell in love with. It is the reason why I am in theater right now. Um I don't want to say I hate the movie version because I don't hate it. It was my first experience with Rent. So there is a little part of me that like kind of looks at it through rose colored lenses, but I do have issues with it. And honestly, after all the ones we've watched, this was like a finally some good fucking singing like we just needed one where everyone's a beautiful singer that's not an issue at all like we're here they sang no one has a problem (laughs) and that's that so there's other things we can talk about and it's it's notably different than everything else we've talked about including the fact that we didn't even really talk about Les Mis we just mentioned it as a comparison but like with the exception of two people this is the original Broadway cast and the two people they got can sing. And I don't know if you guys know this, but Tracy Toms, who played Joanne, went on to play Joanne on Broadway after filming this. Yeah, yeah, I knew that one. Um, I think Ro- I'm, Rosario Dawson may have done it at one point. I don't remember. 
but and I also get like I think that like so I think I've I've mentioned this before, but like I work for the company that originally did rent, and Daphne Rubin Vega is probably the one who is around the most, like you know, in terms of the whole trope of our podcast of Trevor's met someone. Actually, not this time. Um, Daphne Rubin Vega is the only one who's really like around the theater anymore. And so I think they kind of did her dirty with not casting her. Um, but I kind of get it because like, this is a character who's supposed to be 19 and she would have been 36 when they filmed. And so it's like, I get it, but then you probably should have also recast some of the other people. They should have recast everybody actually, because they're all way too damn old, but, um, yeah, yeah, that's one of my issues. No, they're all just way too old. And like, it's so unfortunate yeah, they all because definitely look like they're in their late they, 30s. They all sound great, but they're definitely, they're just too old. Which, I mean, honestly, also a problem on Broadway, too. Yeah. Think about how many guys approaching their 40s play, like, mid-20-year-olds. Yeah. I'm just like, ugh. Or when so the Book of, of Mormon came out and Andrew Rannells was singing about being, like, 19, I was like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's much. Be- it was much better when I saw the Chicago version of that and Ben Platt was uh, Cunningham. And, like, that was perfect. Ben, ben Platt can play a teenager now. And so he does. And so that worked for me. And that actually, you know, Ben Platt was the re- like half the reason that I was able to like audition for that show in the first place. Um, and so like I that one actually works compared to Josh Gatton and Andrew Rannells. But I mean, beyond that, honestly, like I don't know what to say about Rent the movie because it was also very much the same thing where it's like, it was it, I experienced the movie first and it was one of those like on repeat as theater kids had parties kind of thing. And so, like, I understand it's not a perfect movie and I kind of don't care as much. I think um, now being familiar with the stage production, I think I kind of wish they kept it as an opera. I found myself getting annoyed at the lyrics being turned into spoken lines and how they rhymed. I found that annoying yeah. this time around. I was like, why did they do that? I didn't like that. Yeah. I mean, quite frankly, I know the songs so well <laughs> that like I did skip and listen to the dialogue instead. Yes. Like certain songs I was like, ah, I got to get this done before we record. I'm going to skip. Uh, I'm going to skip certain things and just because I know them lyric to lyric and I don't really need to. I also I the first half of the movie, at least, I thought the second half was a little better on this, but the first half of the movie just feels like a collection of music videos. It's just like, there's a song, yeah, and then fair. like, oh, we're in a new place, here's another song, and then like, okay, guess what, we're in a new place, here's another song, this was like, oh, hey, we're in a new place, another song, and then there was just like, never anything like, in between to connect it, like, it still told the story, but it just felt very like chopped up and weird. And I still have mm-hmm. weird feelings about seasons of love being at the beginning. It's bad. Yeah. I don't like it. I don't either. I don't know why they did that. I just can't figure that also out. Also because the actual. It's because it's the most recognizable song. The, fir- the song that comes directly after that is also just genuinely a better introduction. I agree. It's just genuinely a better start plate because they have them on the stage and then they fade to black and then they start. And I'm like, so you really just didn't need that first part. Then <laughs> it doesn't connect to anything. <laughs> Cause it's not even like they do it again, like in like the halfway point of the movie. And then they also do it again at the end. Like, it's not even like a recurring thing. It's just like, 
yeah, for just the beginning of the movie, we're going to have these, I guess the actors, not the characters, but I guess we're just going to have the actors, like, just sing on a stage because haha musical and then never do it again. And I'm just like, okay. Well, so I was curious and I looked up like the deleted scenes and the alternate ending. And I kind of wish they had done the alternate ending. It was, um, so it was the last half of the finale and they were all back on stage and it had angel walking back in grabbing Colin's hand and then going back to her spot in her little spotlight and then finishing off the song and ending the musical. Which I feel like maybe if they had left that, I might be more forgiving of having seasons of love at the beginning. Yeah, it's like having narration at the beginning of a movie and then there's no narration ever again. Right. Oh, you mean like this with Mark? (laughs) I can at least play that off as like it being part of his film. I can at least like kind of play devil's that's what they're doing yeah yeah like i hate playing devil's advocate for rent but i uh, i can't help myself also um so i i actually find it interesting um of what you said about like you didn't like how the songs worked because that was a big difference for me in both sweeney and mamma mia and then going from them to rent because that's sometimes in Sweeney, like it definitely happened in Sweeney, but definitely. Oh, also hold on real quick side note. Uh, we definitely did not mention how fucked over Sasha Baron Cohen got in Sweeney. Um, because that should have been a far funnier scene. It should have been a far stupider, goofier scene. And you cast Sasha Baron Cohen and you expect Sasha Baron Cohen to be Sasha Baron Cohen. And then you don't let him Sasha Baron Cohen. How dare you? Um, Really for the kid, too. That was the thing I had for that entire scene of just like, there should be way more charisma. This should be way funnier. This should be way more over the top. And it's not. Um, But anyway, uh. But it was definitely noted. I definitely was bugged by it in Mamma Mia. How many times people were talking and it was just like, oh, yeah, so we're having a conversation. Oh, my God. Yeah, we're supposed to be singing. Oh, here's a song. And it was just like out of nowhere. And I was just like, God damn, you couldn't transition that any better. And then I got to Rent. And as much as I don't like Rent, as a movie... All the things that I've said about how to shoot musical numbers, what I just said about how to transition musical numbers, it was just like, oh my god, finally, someone does the bare minimum. <laughs> because like, I... Yeah, I, I mean, that's kind of that's kind of what it is. It's just the bare minimum. Like, I could feel a song coming, and then a song just came organically and i was just like yes it's not hard there's an entire song in a cramped subway car and i never got bored because they actually yep. do i shit. actually think that was a great call 
I will. I think I think that some, despite the despite the you know jumping from location to location, like we talked about earlier, I do think that the locations that they chose were smart. I honestly, the one that took me out of it was Tango Maureen when they go into the dream sequence because I'm like, you could have done that with just one Phantom Maureen and the other dancers, um, and the dancers that dance with her, and it would have been I think it would have been more powerful. Um, then having just suddenly a scene where they're in a different costume, it was, it's like, this is not that musical. This is the musical where we're going to sing in a church and everyone's going to be in their own place and it's going to be passionate. And that's, what's going to grab you about it is the emotion of it. I disagree. Um, you know, like, uh, I'll cover you reprise is great. And then in other instances, when they're in the graveyard and then the, the song just kind of explodes out because they're arguing, it's like, that is good organic drifting into the, to the music. I do I disagree about Tango Maureen. Backtrack I... a little bit on what you said, TJ. Sure. Um, when I was talking about the beginning, it wasn't that I felt like they were doing the musical numbers incorrectly. It just um it, it kind of tied to me wanting it to just be an opera rather than having spoken lines in it. Cause the, it felt I guess I guess disconnected, maybe even a little bit choppy. But like it still like all went together. It just was kind of weird for me that it would just bounce without something tying it in together. I think if they did the opera version today as another another iteration of this, um, it, it like I think today people would be much more for it. I I wonder if they were sitting there going, uh, "This is a risk putting this out as a movie." for the rest of the world, because also like, you know, 2005 was nine years after it came out on Broadway and the world still wasn't talking about AIDS, like outside of the theater industry and stuff like that. Like at least not in that same way. Yeah, that's totally true. I, I completely agree with that. I, um, I just, yeah, I just, I, I understand why they didn't do it. I just wish they had anyway. I feel like it would have flowed nicer for me. So, I have many things to say. I'm sure you do. Okay. <laughs> uh, we should just call mm-hmm. this episode. Go ahead, t- t- go ahead and tell him, son. Your mom and I'll sit here and, and listen. <laughs> well, we should just call this episode. TJ loses his only friends. <laughs> 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 uh they're just you guys are just gonna continue this podcast with you two and just i'll i'll just step out <laughs> <laughs> please as if we could do this without you go on i mean tell us uh, everything that's wrong uh um no no rent isn't like there's a reason i put rent last um it was just a coincidence that this ma- this order that we talked about them matched up with the order I watched them in. That was just a coincidence because it really does feel like a natural progression of like Sweeney, everything, everything is wrong. I don't think there's very few things Sweeney got right. And then Mamma Mia is like, okay, you're heading in the right direction, but there's still a lot of very key issues. And then Rent is like it was like somehow both my film side and my very small theater side 
both had an orgasm after the two movies I was subjected to before this. And again, it's because the the movie just gets basic shit right. And then it's just like, yeah, yes. So I'm not crazy. This is how I... Okay. So this is how it should be done. Like, basic fucking transitions from like, you know, dialogue to songs or like from scene to scene or just like, you know... um. Just how you shoot the musical, the the way that, not the stage stuff, but the way that, like, the first number is shot. I was barely five minutes into the movie, officially, and I was just like, yes, that. That is how you're supposed to do this. You're supposed to do it like that. Everything is extreme, but it's not, like, cartoonish. It's not, like, silly. It's kind of like when you see the Avengers. It matters. It's like when you see the Avengers, and it's like, yeah, that's just how you do a comic book movie. It's 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 silly, and it's goofy, but it's not, like, no... It's, like, a weird balance of, like, you're doing this seriously, but you're not taking it too seriously, I guess. And yeah, t- like Trevor said, it, it, it matters. Like, everything that they do matters. Like, how they are framing certain things, how certain things are paced, like, how certain things set up other things. It's like, fucking shit matters. And sometimes that bites them in the ass because it compounds problems that the original probably had. And again, this is one of those times where, like, I have never sat through the original Rent. I've never actually just watched Rent as a musical. This is all I have um, in terms of, like, actually seeing Rent is is this movie. Um, but, like, I know, like, about the musical. It's not like I'm completely blind. And Lindsay Ellis does, like, a very lengthy breakdown of both rent the movie and kind of rent the musical too um and is she biased yeah probably definitely um but it's also like i from the things that she said i was just like yeah that all makes sense as somebody who has nothing to do with this it has no stake all that makes sense but it's like just basic shit tay Diggs started singing his song and it was like the film knew. It was like the film knew I had just sat through Pierce Brosnan doing Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> and Tay Diggs starts riffing the existence out of me. And I'm just like, oh, that's no, oh, this isn't fair. I'm no, I'm not supposed to like Rent. <laughs> but you're- I mean, that's one of those benefits, too, of having the original cast be a part of it is that like they know how to make this they know how to twist those they know how to push those buttons because they know the story in themselves so much from doing it and and being a part of its creation it's like you know there's there's a truth to it where it's like you can have plenty of really great people play these roles but for the most part like you know like adam rap is mark and so it's like they they're able to really kind of twist those knobs. Tay Diggs get it was Benny, and so it's like they're able to 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 execute it in a way that's like yes 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 yes. Even if the film itself or the redoing of the order doesn't do it, doesn't pay off. 
Yeah, all that is all that is true. <sighs> or no, Anthony Rapp. Sorry, Adam Rapp is his playwright brother. Um, it, yeah. I Adam, actually, yeah, Adam I Pascal thought you were like is Roger. mixing up the two, yeah. but then I started questioning whether or not I knew their names. So okay, <laughs> <laughs> but they're both A's, and that's why I'm like, ugh. Uh, so uh, I guess I should start dipping into the shit that might get me shit canned uh, from all of my theater friends because now this look. Again, I just said I've never seen the original Rent. All I have is this movie. And I have issues with the movie. But in doing in having issues with the movie, I basically have issues with Rent. So, <laughs> like I it's a tangled web of cords that I can't just yank apart. So, here we go. I hate I mean, I'm not going to I'm not truly going to defend a, a musical that was written in 1993 like from a very specific point of view in a very specific time. Like, you know, if you, if there are things about it that like are problematic, it's like that we get it. Well, my primary thing on this podcast is just objectively looking at things as from like a film point of view. So, a lot of my things are going to be like how the script is structured or like why you choose to do one thing instead of the other. And did you do adequate setup and payoff and like, you know, boring shit like that. Um, with that said, Mimi and Roger makes my skin crawl. I am not here for it. I don't like how they do Roger in this, in this movie. I don't know how it is on the stage, but I imagine it can't be that different because these are just the lyrics <laughs> of just like it weirdly treats Roger like he's wrong or out of line for saying no. As a recovering drug addict, I will not do drugs with you and have sex with you, person I don't really know that well. Um... And, like, the film weirdly positions Mimi as, like, being the person in the right both times they have this conversation. And the second time they go further. Because the first time, it's like this flirtatious thing. They don't really end on bad terms necessarily. It's just like, it, it's a meet cute. That's all it is. It's like, Mimi's like, hey, want to smoke up and fucking, and fuck? And... Roger's like, no thanks, but um, I'll catch you later, I suppose. And then the second time, Mimi's like, look, dude, you really should do this. And Roger's like, hey, look, dude, I really told you I don't want to. And the film goes out of its way to make it seem like, look, Roger, why you like this, man? Come on, you got to live life. Sometimes you gotta do some drugs and fuck a girl you don't know that well. What's wrong with you? And like Angel and company, I think that's a really like, cynical view of the reality of it. I mean, I'm just saying how the film presents it. Of like Mimi, like gets com comforted by Angel and like the people on the ground, and they're like, I don't know why he won't do drugs with me and fuck me. And Roger's like, Oh, I can't believe you've done this. And it's just like, this I, is a very 
easily like understandable situation from Roger's point of view. I don't know why you're like this movie. I just I don't think she's ever asking him to do drugs with her. I think she's trying to I think she approaches the apartment and use like uses her uses her flirtation to try to rob them. And then she finds that she's actually attracted to that guy. And I think he's attracted to her too, but he's I never like, got the I sense can't that she was trying to rob let them. myself be attached. Is that a thing in the She musical? was looking, that's why she keeps blowing out the, that's why she keeps blowing out the candle is because she's like, oh, I need an excuse to be in here. Can you, can you light my candle while I look for your house for either drugs or things that I can, because she's probably been in other people's houses and found drugs in that I, block or, or find something I can sell for drugs. I thought she was flirting with him and that was it she is but that's not that's not what she wants out of the scene until she does until that changes and she does again and then also he's he's only not interested because they're supposed i mean they're supposed to be within like four or five years of each other which is not that bad at that age um and for like who they are and the fact that they have jobs and shit um and like he he is attracted to her, but he he won't get closer to her because he doesn't want to be close to anybody. And because, well, and be, and because she's doing drugs, like that's a point of like a, right. many of the lyrics. It's just like, hey man, why don't you just ditch the drugs? Can you just can you just ditch the drugs, please? Like, come on. <laughs> yeah, and then he finally does get together with her when she's taking AZT to get off the drugs. AZT is for AIDS. I thought AZT was AIDS. Which is what... Oh, sorry, wait, no, sorry, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. No, but then, but no, but she is trying to get clean uh, with I Should Tell You, and that's why he decides to actually give, take a chance on her. Don't you dare. What? Oh, no, I, was, I actually okay. wasn't going to. <laughs> um, no, and actually, if I would, one of the songs that I sing for auditions is Take a Chance on Me from the Little Women musical, which is much better. <laughs> God damn it. Anyway, <laughs> we're just ra- racking up this number. So like, I, I get how your skin crawls with that, but, but I think it's, I think it's, I think you may have gotten stuck on one thing and not seen the other things. Cause the film does have her crawling around looking for the drugs that fell out of her pocket and blowing out the candle on purpose um, to stay in the house. And he turns her away and she's like, ah, it went out again. Like, I will give you that, like, okay, I was kind of, like, playing up the bit, uh, and so, like, I, yeah, I don't think she ever really goes, we should do drugs. I will give you that much, but the rest of it is still pretty valid of just, like, you know, it weirdly, the movie kind of disagrees with Roger. Okay, I have to interrupt you for a second. I'm sorry. Um, she also never asks for sex either because the song she sings before she goes into their apartment is about how she wants to go out. So I'm not even sure where you get sex from either. She's flirting. Like, she's there. She wants to go flirting out. with him. Yes, and because she wants him to take her out. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, and then to come back and do other things. She wants to go out. Literally, that whole song is about how she wants to go out. You're putting words in a girl's mouth there, bud. She never says that. She just wants oh him God. to go out with her. It's also because yeah, I think of you like just move on to your next point. It's also because <laughs> of like the message on the window of like, hey, we should get brunch. Like that's that's a date. That is a date message. And everyone in that scene 
I literally, everyone at some point in the scene that has that message on the window goes out of their way to look at Roger and go, hey, you should do, you should go. You should do that. Uh, And it's like, really nobody cares about the fact that like, hey, Roger's not really ready for that. Like his fucking last girlfriend killed herself. I don't, they don't really touch on that that much in this, but that I do know that from the original source material that like she killed herself like and he no she didn't she died of aids no she, she does her wrist kill in the herself bathroom. in the original yeah she slits her oh, wrist oh that's in the right that's right that's right and leaves him a note that they have aids like that's how she dies that's right but also i guess from the friend point of view if i were living with roger and his girlfriend died a year ago and he's not stepped foot outside since I would probably also say, why not? You should go. I wouldn't like. I think that's- yeah, you know, they're living in America at the yeah. end of the millennia. You're what you own, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like I, I'm just I saying, I would say with- the same thing. I would say you should go, especially since you've not been outside in a year. And I think personally, from my own disturbingly similar experience, that's not the way to go. <laughs> Uh, and I think there's just in the same movie, there's a much better way to do this where instead of, Hey, go out with the girl that you may or may not even be interested in. They do later on go, Hey, come to life support. And that's where he takes a step forward. And I'm like, yeah, if we were focusing more on this, that's different because yeah, I do agree there that like, yeah, this would genuinely help Roger out. You know, he needs to get out of the house. He needs to get out of his head and get genuine help from other people. But I think the film just, I don't know. There's this thing of like the first couple times Roger and Mimi interact, the film is like, Roger, go to her. And it's just like, he can still just not be ready. Like people do things at different speeds, guys. <laughs> well, like, I think it's, it's fine. I guess the way I've seen Roger is he's letting. I I I've always thought that he was just like holding himself back, and because like I I thought it oh was, yeah he is. I thought it was very clear that he liked this girl in all of their interactions. Yeah. Like, I thought it was extremely clear. Like I like this girl, but I'm not going to do anything because I have AIDS. Like that's kind of where I saw it. Like I, I don't deserve to do any of this. Like that's kind of how he came across to me, which I guess is why I was very unbothered by his friends encouraging him and by the film encouraging him because I felt like that was the point is that like he wanted to do all these things but he just wouldn't and to to counter that what makes it worth it for the only functional relationship in the whole thing with collins and angel is that despite the fact that they both have aids and they are going to die they still they still go out and love and be themselves and that's what they're trying to get roger to do because like that's the whole point of this show is like 
doing what you want to do because like literally they say it 15,000 times, no day, but today, like the entire purpose of the show is to live every day in a way that makes you happy. Like if you're doing something that makes you unhappy, quit because this is a musical. This is a musical. You can do whatever you want without consequences. Like that is the purpose of this show. It's people living with living with living with living with not dying from disease. I just thought there was a better way to do it. I feel like, I feel like in some cases, at least, I feel like you're taking it like a little bit too literally. Like, I know it's realism, but it's also still a musical. Like, it's like, it, I guess my best example is like, okay, so you do things and like, sure, in the real world, there would be consequences. But like, this is a musical world. There are no consequences. It's like the sound of music. It's like Nazis who, didn't you hear? We got Julie Andrews and God is on her side. No Nazis here, kids. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, sure, it's a very real situation. Well, not only that, but like in the movie, Take Me or, uh, Take Me or Leave Me, it's at their fucking like essentially wedding yes. reception because they can't actually legally get married. And like, that's like, oh, you're really going to blow that entire fucking thing up on the day of like, geez. But yeah, it's a musical. All that aside, I didn't like, I didn't really, I just didn't like the execution of that. Um, one thing that's very specific to, well, two things. There are two things that are specific to this movie adaptation because there are decisions that are, like very keenly, keenly, this movie made these decisions and now I need to address them. The first of which being, uh, well, okay, I'll stick a pin in that because that's a bigger thing. So really, uh, in that Lindsay Ellis video, I found it interesting that she addressed the way that Chris Columbus, because for those that don't know, Chris Columbus is the one that directed uh, Rent, the guy who directed the first two Harry Potter movies. And I guess Home Alone, but I'd never seen Home Alone, so that doesn't matter to me. Um, she was like, you know, I could tell he was kind of un- didn't really know how to do this. Maybe he was uncomfortable with it. But, like, the way he filmed I'll Cover You was very, like, odd. And I was like, huh, I don't know. Okay, sure, I'll take your word for it because I haven't. it's been forever since I've seen the movie. Now when I've seen the movie, and especially this is coming right off the heels of that subway car scene we mentioned earlier, and it is noticeable specifically because of that, of like, oh, you just had like a scene that was like very creatively blocked and intimately shot, and it was very interesting to watch them do this. And then I'll cover you, one of the most intimate songs in the entire movie is shot mostly in long shots and like static like tripods or like very basic you know mediums and it's supposed to be this song about like these two people coming together and being in a relationship and it's how they it's about how they fall in love with each other and it's like this is probably the most least intimate shot thing in the movie, which is odd. And I blame Hollywood for that. I blame 2005 Hollywood for not being able to figure out how to, quote unquote, safely present a love story between a gay man and uh, a... It's undefined, and so many people have debates as to whether Angel is trans or just... Well, they uh, say cross-dresser in queen. the movie, so... Um, yeah. Right. Um, 
they don't I don't think but they she know does how to, identify as a woman. Right. Um, I, I don't think they knew how to do it. I don't think that in 2005 anybody was like, oh, yeah, the theater world can do this. I don't know if Hollywood can do this. Think about how many other gay stories there were by 2005. It's not many. And so, like, yeah, you're totally right. I wish they would have done more with it. I don't think the world could. I don't I don't think that they were in a position with the studio to really do it. Well, yeah, but as a as somebody who's basically technically a quote unquote critic, I I can't really like make that excuse for them as a isolated piece of art. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally give you that. I just, like, I think there's, like, a, it's, I think it's a very obvious why it's that way. And I mean, like, I had the same thought, too, because, like, um, I've seen interviews that had the two actors in them, and they're just, like, lovey without playing their characters. Like, they're touching each other all the time, holding hands. And I remember watching that scene and going, huh, this is very subdued for them. So it's like, yeah, I, we, I'm totally on board with it, TJ. It should have been better. It, but it, I get why, I, I get why it ended up being what it was. Like, it's just, it's a, it's a symptom of a bad time for people to be able to make that cinematic choice. Yeah. So to start, um, getting down to like the real core, because, you know, I knew this was going to be a packed episode, and it is, uh, and we're kind of getting towards the point where we got to start wrapping. Um, I think my main issue with Rent, the movie, is Rent, the musical. <laughs> like, that's just... And that's okay. Like, that, that makes sense. Uh, because it's like, I can't, it's like that tangled up chords thing. It's just like, the more I start nitpicking at, like, what I would really want to see and what I think would make this better, it's just like, yeah, but that's not the movie's fault. That's the source material. And I'm like, well, then, if it is, I mean, it is what it is then. Like, I guess I just have a problem with the source material then. Um, because I feel like certain characters could be stronger, and I feel, more importantly, that the story absolutely should have been stronger. Like... Mark is a weird tangential tale on this cast of characters. Mark has like a a family that's just kind of right over there and he's a white cis male that doesn't have AIDS and is the only one in a real actual position aside from Joanne, but you know, Joanne's got her own stuff again, but like he's all honestly the only one in the story that is ever in a position to like actually make decent money to pay the rent. And it's like, it is kind of difficult justifying his place in this story because while he cares, he's not really part of it. He's not really a part of the conflict in any way, except kind of on the side looking in. It's like everyone else is either an LGBTQ member or they're dealing with AIDS or they're dumb poor. And it's like, Mark doesn't really fall into like any of those categories for the entire movie. Like he starts off poor, but if like he's a white cis male in New York who wants to be a filmmaker. Like, I mean, 
Like, he'll find some way to do something. And I think a way to kind of address both that and the issue I have with the story of it being about AIDS, quote unquote, but like, like it's about people that have AIDS. It's not really about AIDS. It's about people who happen to have AIDS. Like, and I think there's a better version of this story where it's more about the fight for the American government to do something about AIDS. Because I, from all that I've heard and all that I've seen, like, fucking people with AIDS in the late 80s and early 90s were not taking this shit lying down. They weren't just singing La Vie Bohème in fucking restaurants. They were doing shit, like radical shit. Like, Maureen's protest is basically a concert with some political references, kind of. But it's like, there easily could have been more if, like, you make Angel the big figurehead, like, radical member of the group that is like, no, we need to fight. We need to do shit. And if Angel were to make a lasting impression on Mark and Angel dies and Mark basically takes up that torch and is like, as a white cis male, I can actually do shit from within the society to actually say something, to do something as a filmmaker. And I'm going to be the one that like keeps this fight going now that Angel is gone it like it would have done something it would have done more for me for that character because otherwise this story is about a bunch of people who are struggling to deal with AIDS, struggling to be part of the LGBTQ community in a time where it's very dangerous to be a part of that community and they're poor, they're down on their luck and then there's also Mark. And it's like for me, again, that's just a problem that I kind of just have with Rent because it's not really the film's fault that, like, sometimes the stuff that Mark deals with is kind of like, is this supposed to be in the same movie? Like, the love triangle and the not selling out to corporate stuff. I feel like that's almost, it's, it's it's separate thing than the actual story that's going on. I have, I have plenty of things to outline why why it is the way it is, and I'll try to make it quick. Um, first of all, it's based on La Boheme. It's based on the opera. I know, and so the characters do have had like to a certain extent have those same character dynamics. There is a you know Musetta is like Musetta's waltz is Maureen's like a Maureen character's theme in La Boheme and stuff. Um, and so they like they rearrange all that stuff um, to make that work and add characters and subtract characters and add like the whole Angel and Collins plot is is an added thing because the other two are just friends in the opera. Um, but then also, I think I think you're underestimating it's it's more about the bohemian lifestyle than it is about the AIDS. I think the AIDS is just a huge factor about that. And I also think you're underestimating a little bit about how many people had already died, how many people who were activists who had already died 
from AIDS and how much they lost momentum in that movement by 1989. Um, so where it's like, I understand wanting to have that, like that kind of resolution and to be more proactive with it, with the characters. I just think it's not necessarily the, the experience that Jonathan Larson was directly building from when writing this. Yeah. I mean, that could have been part of the story. Jonathan Larson, um, he wrote this as a love letter to his artist friends because he had many friends with AIDS. Um, and I I do agree. I This is like less about the AIDS and more about being an artist in New York. Um, and like, I also feel like, I don't know if maybe I misunderstood you or maybe um, you might've misunderstood what Maureen's protest was. Um, it wasn't political at all. It was more, um, it was about Benny tearing down the tent city where the homeless were living to build a cyber mm-hmm. studio. There was yeah. really nothing like political about it other than like Benny being a dick. <laughs> like that was basically the performance. That may not have anything to do with politics, but I think that's still a political statement. Well, yes, uh, yes, but it's not political yeah. in the sense that I feel like you're thinking of. Like that was not her protesting the government's non-action yeah, no. against AIDS. That was her protesting Benny and his father-in-law tearing down an entire tent city where homeless people were living. Yeah, I know. I'm saying I wish it was more about, like, a call to action to do something about AIDS. Like, I'm saying I wish it was that. Okay, I get it. Uh, but... Yeah, I think it's I think it's at the up. end of the day, this had the one with the best singing. So <laughs> damn right. And the one with the best cinematography out of all of them. So even that one even with that one scene that mm, we already talked about it. So really what like I said, I feel like this is just volume one because I, I still feel like we haven't. It would have been a more satisfying talk, like, unfortunately, if we had found one that is just like, boom, you got it. Um, and so I kind of want to like continue to search. I kind of want some time in the middle of next year to have like volume two where we try a couple more out. And I'm wondering what those would be. Um, if you're trying to find one that got it, I would suggest maybe we, uh, consider little shop and into the woods. Um, yeah, into the woods, we could probably talk about a lot cause there's, there's some up and down with that as well. And maybe even go back a little bit deeper and do something like West side story. Yeah. Now I have zero, I have zero experience with West side story. So we're looking at another mama Mia here. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Except not as happy. Um, I guess I will say thank you guys for having me. This was really fun. Thank you for coming. Oh my gosh. I'd come again a hundred times if you wanted me to. But yes, thank you. This was really fun. I enjoyed this. You know what all is also gonna come? You know what is also Stop. going to come Stop. tomorrow? Stop. Um, which is two references <laughs> in one. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Do you hear the people sing tomorrow? Tomorrow. Oh, I thought. Okay, never mind. Um, Trixie, I love you so much. Um, <laughs> yes, it's both Lemiz and. Oh, and tomorrow is a latter day. Oh, I could go on with this. Anyway, uh, Trixie, Trixie, <laughs> would you like to once again plug uh, the Imposters? The Imposters Theater Company. We are a small Chicago theater company that's kind of just started out. 
We're on Instagram. We're on YouTube. We have lots of free content. And by lots, I mean like two things. Uh, we do original works and they're fun and they're goofy and sometimes they're magical and dark. And you should definitely check us out. They're at Imposters Theater on Instagram. Uh, theater is spelled T-R-E at the end. All right, Trevor, any lasting words? Uh, yeah, um, support the arts. Um, you know, if this bill doesn't get vetoed, uh, but well, I mean, we'll know by the time this comes out, but um, the Save Our Stages was in the most recent bill that at the time of recording this is the one that's on Trump's desk. Um, and, you know, if you want this kind of stuff back, whether it's Broadway or your niece's recital that you know she loves, you need to support the arts um, and you need to support live arts because you don't get these movie musicals without that first. Um, so, you know, I, I can definitely post um, alongside this episode, some resources that I know that I'm relying on and that a lot of other people I know are relying on to uh, kind of keep the, keep thing going until we can get back sometime next year after vaccines um, are distributed. So we, we definitely want to be back. We're ready to come back and, um, you know, if you find that you have a little bit of extra um, as your life gets back to normal to give to get these things back, I highly encourage you to do so. And you can uh, participate in some of that on some level by uh, checking out Journalist Theater uh, Company. Their Instagram is Journalists Theater. Theater, again, is with a T-R-E at the end. Theater with an R-E. And uh, last thing I'm going to say uh, is just something that I was taught in the very first play I was in, in the hollowed words of Victor Hugo, to love another person is to see the face of God. Uh, love each other. Damn it. Or else. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, I've been TJ Patrick. I've been Trevor Catalano. Thanks once more to Emily Goldbrinson uh, for being here on the show. Thank you. And very until next much. time, guys. Thank you very much. That's the nicest thing that anyone's ever done for me. Um, that's Scrooge the musical. Take a bow. <laughs> that's Rihanna. Take a How bow, dare you? Trevor. <laughs> Good night. Good night, everybody.